Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. Biblical Literacy 101. I'm glad you could join us for this. Um, just to let you know what we're doing here, what, why we're doing what we're doing here. We are basically doing a course on studying the Bible. And we're going to be studying through the Bible in a verse-by-verse fashion, um, starting with the book of Psalms, uh, but proceeding to other books as well. The reason we're doing this is that the, the Bible is the single most important piece of information that we have access to. Uh, Without it, we do not have proper knowledge of God's offer of salvation. We do not know what it is, where it comes from, uh, or even why we need it. But uh, beyond that, without this, we don't have any insight into the person of God himself. In addition to not understanding the danger we're in without him, we're also not able to understand his love and how we can relate to him. Uh, In the same way that were you to find yourself in a situation where you could only communicate with someone you dearly loved by letter, let's say, if you were to receive such a letter or a series of letters from this person, unless you truly did not care about the person sending the letter, I would submit that you would read that letter thoroughly. You would be straining for any piece, uh, any turn of phrase, Uh, any wording, any description, anything in that letter that would help you understand or know the author better. Uh, In this way, the Bible is the primary way that we encounter God. Uh, Yes, there is indeed uh, something to be said for a personal experience, but that experience must always be secondary to Scripture so that we don't try to reinvent God uh, as the Gnostics did. Uh, by our way of experience. Basically, if our experience is contrary to Scripture, our experience is wrong, um, or at least misunderstood by us. Uh, So how? Well, there's many ways to study the Bible. Uh, Many good ways, I should say. There's some bad ones too, but there's plenty of good ways. As we teach these lessons, we will not be telling you to study the Bible in exactly the way that we do. Uh, Actually, you'll probably see different methods uh, by the different speakers that you see here. However, we do hope to provide information that aids you in your personal studies. Uh, If our methods don't work for you, that's fine. Hopefully, at least the information we provide will be supportive to you. For me, the best way to study is to have purpose. Uh, Make a decision that you want to understand a particular thing, let's say. Uh, Decide that you want to understand it so well that you could explain it or teach it to someone else. Then find the part of the Bible or parts, uh, I recommend utilizing the whole book that this part is found in, that explains this thing. And go through that piece by piece until you have that knowledge of it. And of course, the other knowledge gained from that book. Uh, Start with scripture. Always start with the Bible first. Read it through without diving into commentary. 
commentary is great. I love commentary. There's a couple of commentators that I, I go to all the time. Um, but commentaries are not always correct. Even my favorite ones, I cannot say are correct 100% of the time. Um, people like to praise uh, Charles Spurgeon as one of the best Bible commentators out there. And I do agree. He's arguably in at least, <laughs> you'd have to put him in at least the top 10. Um, but even he doesn't get everything right because no human can. Um, so after you have read the scripture, check the cross-references. Uh, many times a difficult scripture can be greatly clarified by reading the section suggested in the cross-reference. Um, this helps to link up multiple parts of the Bible, giving a greater understanding of the thought process involved. Uh, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, as you look in your Bible, pretty much all Bibles will have little tiny uh, letters or numbers next to the, the text, like kind of tucked into it. Uh, there will also be a column usually in the center of your Bible or on the side with uh, the link up to either those numbers or uh, letters, and it'll reference other books and verses of the Bible. Um, generally speaking, those sections, they will uh, provide greater clarity. It'll be a spot where the same phrase is used somewhere else in Scripture, or the same concept is discussed elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, it really helps to layer on understanding. Um, I would say then, uh, don't be afraid to use interlinear references uh, to pull out the proper meanings of words. If a word or word placement feels odd to you, then take a minute and find out what the word is in the original Greek or Hebrew um, and what that word actually means. Sometimes you'll find that a word does have multiple meanings. And in that case, you kind of review the context of the meanings to see how the word makes sense in the spot you started. Um, uh, many times, the, the, the overall theme of the passage and the book as a whole will speak to how a particular word is used, especially if that word has multiple meanings. Um, Bible translations are usually honest. Most of the popular ones out there, most of, there's a couple of popular ones that aren't so honest, but um, the good ones, I'd say they're about 95% accurate. And um, that 5% really comes down to this kind of like uh, a debate over translation often. And uh, sometimes reviewing the word can help you get that 5%, can help you kind of cross that threshold. Um, finally, uh, commentaries and parallel translations. Uh, once you've done your part and properly reviewed the text to the best of your ability, then go into these other things. Um, start with what other translations say. Uh, pull up a parallel and look at, like if you read ESV, read it next to NASB or New King James or even NIV. Um, those are probably, in my opinion, those are the four best uh, ones to use. Um, and sometimes taking the parallel next to each other lets you see, you know, you won't see a difference in the theme but you might see a different phrasing um, to how they understand, the, the, the writers who came together, how they understood the words. And sometimes looking at them side by side can help you get that deeper meaning of it. Um, once you've done that, then I would say check on what other reliable teachers 
have had to say about that passage. Uh, that's where your commentaries come into play. Um, I recommend Charles Spurgeon, of course. Matthew Henry is very good. Um, David Guzik is another one. Uh, and there's plenty out there. There's plenty of good ones out there. Um, but also, do, do some research. Do check up on the commentators that you're looking into. Make sure that they are sound and they know what they're talking about. There are a lot of armchair commentators out there who will throw out their opinion on particular chunks of the Bible based on their bias. And you do want to try to avoid that as best as possible. Um, on a personal note, don't be afraid to mark up your Bible. Make notes for yourself or highlight things. Um, if you don't like that, or even if you do but you want more space to do that, go ahead and keep a journal or a Bible study notebook. Um, these are all great uh, tools. And once again, they don't work for everybody, but they do work for a lot of people. So I would say they're worth trying sometimes. Um, but don't feel pressured in it. Don't feel pressured into journaling and notebooking. Uh, they don't work for everyone. Um, if it does work for you, awesome. If not, awesome. <laughs> the important thing is that you're reading the Bible for yourself and you're working to understand it uh, as God intended, as, it, as it's presented to you in his scripture. Um, from there, you can start to work on what that means for your life. Uh, so that being said, um, as I mentioned before, we are starting in the book of Psalms. And we're going to teach through the book of Psalms for a while and then start to jump into other books of the Bible. So uh, let me give you a quick overview of the book of Psalms. Uh, it has 150 chapters. Nice round number. That's comfortable. Uh, they are authored by uh, seven. Or at least I should say we have seven known author groups. Um, there is, and I say groups because some of them are technically multiple people. Uh, we have, first of course, which you probably are aware of, David. David wrote 75 total psalms. Uh, 73 are noted in psalms as being from him. The other two out of um, his are, uh, let me see, uh, Psalm 95 is attributed to David. Uh, we find reference for that in the New Testament. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the other two that are not named as David's are Psalm 2 and Psalm 95. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, those two are attributed to David in the New Testament. That's where we find the proof. Um, the New Testament authors explain that those are from him. However, the rest of them, the ones he wrote are, uh, and it's clear that he wrote them by the, the Psalms themselves, are 3 through 9, 11 to 32, 34 to 41, 51 to 65, 68 to 70, 86, 101, 103, 108 to 110, 122, 124, 131, 133, and 138 to 145. Um, I know, that's a lot of information you don't necessarily <laughs> need at the moment, but it's just fun to kind of know, I think. Um, the second author of Psalms is Asaph, and this is one of the groups I said, Asaph and family, um, as noted in some of them. They did a total of 12 Psalms, uh, specifically Psalm 50, and then 73 to 83. Uh, then we have the Sons of Korah, another grouping. Uh, they did 11 Psalms, 42, 44 to 49, 84, 85, and 87 to 88. Uh, then we have a fellow by the name of Himan. He did just one psalm, although it is noted that he did it with the sons of Korah. It's singled out, though, because he is singled out in this spot. Uh, he's responsible for uh, 88, or 
with the sons of Korah, I should say. So it kind of gets noted twice. Uh, Solomon, he wrote two, 72 and 127. And then Moses, uh, he wrote one, uh, Psalm 90. Uh, we have Ethan, the Ezraite. He wrote one as well. That's number 89. And then the last 48 of them are anonymous. Um, so we just kind of lump that into one group. They, uh, we don't know who wrote those. It'd be awesome if someday we do, if we have another Dead Sea Scrolls moment and find even more information. But um, for now, they're just kind of lumped into this anonymous category. Uh, fun in fact, due to the inclusion of a psalm from Moses um, and, of course, the various anonymous authors, the book technically covers a time range of over 1,000 years, uh, at least 1,000 years. Uh, we don't officially know who compiled the psalms, uh, but some commentators like uh, Matthew Henry, for example, submit that the prophet Ezra probably did it um, because uh, due to timing uh, and some literary clues people suggest, but because he was towards the end of the writing of these psalms, a lot of people give it to him. Um, also, a uh, very interesting note, the book of Psalms is uh, it's kind of divided up into um, a number of smaller books. Um, and I won't go into detail on that because I know uh, Jesse's going to cover that on uh, when he teaches on Psalms 10 and 11. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, check out the session on Psalms 10 and 11. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, so what is a psalm? A psalm uh, sometimes translated as song. Uh, sometimes people even call it the Book of Songs, um, which gets a little confusing with Song of Solomon. Um, so not a lot of people do that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can kind of sort of call them songs, but I think a truer translation when we look at the word and we look at what it means would be hymns uh, or praises even. Uh, Psalms is, the Book of Psalms is something of an early Hebrew hymnal. It's a collection of songs uh, of worship to God. Uh, some feel like more standard poetic praises, uh, but others come across more like prayers uh, regarding a particular struggle or situation in the author's life. Tonight, we'll be looking at the first three. And this works out really well as they kind of exemplify the three main psalm writing styles. The first being uh, something closer to a proverb, showing a uh, contrast between right and wrong, presenting information, and then the contrast or a contrast statement that kind of gives both sides of the issue in a, wrapped in a single item. Uh, the second one being more of a poetic standard, uh, explaining a thought by presenting something and then layering parallel themes together. The third uh, being more clearly musical. Uh, clearly it's an actual song and it has even something of a recognizable verse format. Uh, so that being said, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, Psalm 1, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read this um, really quick. Uh, it's titled, uh, at least in the ESV, The Way of the Righteous and the Wicked. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, so starting off this, uh, this particular psalm, we do not know the author of this one. This is an author unknown psalm. Um, it's one of the simplest of the psalms, and uh, it was wisely chosen, I would say, as the start to the collection. It uh, feels almost like, uh, as I kind of mentioned before, one of the Proverbs uh, in its design and in its focus. A standard example of Hebrew poetry in that it exemplifies or teaches a thing by a flow of contrasting ideas. It's a, it's a general truth offered in poetic form to help you remember it, basically. Um, so let's look at the verses a little more closely. Verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Um, blessed is the man who. This is a common phrase in Hebrew poetry and declar uh, declarative speeches um, in the Old Testament especially. Uh, you, will, you will see this phrase a lot, especially over the course of this study. Um, blessed. In a, a very base sense, that word means happy. Um, but arguably, uh, in context and how it tends to be used a lot in scripture, it's more akin to contentment. So there, there is happiness wrapped up in the idea of contentment, but I, it goes a step further, I would say. It's less fleeting than the general idea of happiness. Uh, also, just to get this out of the way, uh, when the Bible, especially Psalms and Proverbs, says man, it's usually not man in contrast to woman. Um, a lot of people like to accuse the Bible of being sexist, but uh, let me put it this way. Spurgeon actually put it very well in his commentary on the Psalms. He said, it is not blessed is the king, it is not blessed is the scholar, it is not blessed is the rich, but blessed is the man. This blessedness is attainable by the poor, the forgotten, and the obscure, uh, just as much as those whose names figure in history and are trumpeted by fame. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, not male versus female, you see, but common or everyone, as opposed to those of note or position. Um, so yeah, this is, it's supposed to be everyone. This is an everyone kind of a thing. Um, it just made more sense to phrase it that way back then. <clears throat> uh, so what we get here, kicking off this psalm, is uh, a contrast. We see, see how he opens with uh, three things that the man will not do if he is to be blessed, followed by two, maybe three, depending on how you read it, that he will do to be blessed. What does he not do? He does not walk in the way of the wicked or ungodly, depending on your translation. Uh, way as in like manner. That's what that typically means. Um, he does not stand in the path of sinners. Stand, not necessarily meaning to rise up from your seat and stand upon your legs, um, but stand uh, in context means to be noted among. So he is not noted among sinners. Uh, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers or the scornful, depending on your translation again. Um, <clears throat> we have here is a brief picture of the fullness of one's days. Uh, does not walk, does not stand, does not sit. It's 
It's a continual, everything that you may do. You may walk in the way as you go from one place to another, as you carry yourself, as you move, does not stand in the path, is not found in such a place, does not note himself among, um, going out into the world from the path, noting himself among, and then does not, pardon me, and then does not sit in the seat of scorn, scoff of mockery, disrespect. He does not rest in this manner. He does not go out and work in this manner. He does not uh, make himself known in this manner, and his rest is not known in this manner. Uh, now look at the contrast here. But his delight, as opposed to being in those three negative behaviors, is the law of the Lord. Um, to make a more specific comparison, at least how we would see it, his delight is in the law as opposed to the behavior of the ungodly. Uh, in one of his sermons, Spurgeon basically stated that because of the fall of man, our hearts are something they were never intended to be. <clears throat> and that is a vacuum, a void pulling into itself. Uh, he points out that if we do not purposefully fill that void with the word of God, we wind up pulling whatever garbage is near us. Sorry about that. Um, then, on his law, he meditates day and night. So I submit that this is the parallel of the standing and sitting uh, metaphor. Um, <clears throat> the day of going and the night of sitting rest. So he, instead of two separate sentences to contradict those, he's wrapping them up into one. Um, the standing is the day, the sitting is the night. Instead of those things, he meditates on God's law in that place. <clears throat> and I think this can be tough uh, when trying to understand the Psalms for our American sense of poetry. Sometimes, uh, as we kind of uh, expect rhymes uh, or full equal opposites, uh, some of you might know of the like ABBA, ABAB format <clears throat> found very commonly in our poetry. Um, but often, Jewish poetry, Hebrew poetry, will resolve based on theme and concept as opposed to full parallel of sound, uh, as we typically do. Um, let's look at verse 3 here. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So uh, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. We tend to think, I think, very small when we come to uh, nature from this poetic or symbolic viewpoint, uh, the tree is large and powerful. It's shade, uh, it provides shade and comfort and food. Uh, yes, those are true. But think about this as someone from that era. Think about this as someone who has literally spent most of their life outside watching nature grow over the course of their years. This tree has so many more aspects to it. Evening the, um, pardon me, even the opening descriptor uh, planted by streams of water. Think for a moment. If you had to cut down a tree, uh, would your mind go so far as to decide which to take based on this bit of location information? Um, possibly not, because we don't tend to think that way now, for those of us who are kind of removed from that world. Um, but I would argue that if you did live in this world, if you did live in this environment, if cutting down a tree was a normal part of your life, 
A tree further from water makes more sense to cut down. Why? Well, one, it's probably easier. A tree by the water always has access to water. The roots grow towards the moist earth. It's not dependent, or as dependent at least, on rain as a tree far from running water would be. Um, second, a tree by the water is going to have better fruit due to the water. You'd leave that one alone because you'd want that fruit. Uh, now let's take it a step further. In his commentary on the Psalms, Spurgeon points out the use of the word planted uh, as opposed to a wild tree. Um, this image of being chosen, considered as owned, cultivated, placed decisively. So already this is kind of a symbol of, uh, of true prosperity. But he continues, it yields fruit in season and not withering. These are signs of a healthy tree. The parallel is a man who succeeds in his ventures, who makes wise decisions. Um, I would just add in the, the, uh, I'd add that in all he does, he prospers, that line. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean this person is always going to be physically healthy and worldly wealthy. These are spiritual matters that we're looking at. And the nature of this world is to twist those into physical reward, immediate reward. The man who does right will prosper before God. His actions will lead to the blossoming result that God intended. Um, his leaves will not wither, not because he is physically perfect and healthy, but his spiritual fruit, his faith will be evident. Those looking at this person will see a strong and healthy faith that exemplifies the true believer. But as he goes on, the wicked are not so. In verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Right off the bat, the, the last statement considers um, all of what we just said false to the wicked one. Um, and then it adds on to that, that they are like chaff. If you're not familiar with what chaff is, chaff is the incredibly thin shell on various seeds and grains. Um, you can get rid of it by shaking those seeds together and simply tossing them in the air. Uh, even a gentle breeze will take the chaff and leave the seed. So this serves a dual duty. It shows us how hard it will be for the one who does the wrong things stated in that they will be driven around by the force of the wind. And that would represent the winds of life. Um, but at the same time, the kind of unstated contrasting statement is that those winds will not affect the tree uh, or the man that the tree represents. He will not be harmed by the tumultuous nature of life. And once again, this is not necessarily speaking, you know, like I said, financially or health-wise. This is spiritually. This is within God. Um, so keep the idea of the driving winds in mind that we finish up and look at verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked will not stand in. That also means be able to stand up to the judgment. Um, nor sinners in the uh, congregation of the righteous. See, the wind now stands for the judgment of God. And the sinner, much like the chaff, has no weight. They have no substance to them. They're like the chaff. Um, and you note that when we are in God, 
that wind that so easily blows away the chaff, we're like, it's, it's like that wind against the tree is our security in Christ. Um, he says, for the Lord knows, the Lord knows the way. Um, the psalm is capped off with a reminder that if you do not follow this instruction, uh, that, oh, I'm sorry, not if, this psalm is capped off with a reminder that you do not follow this instruction for the sake of other men. You do it because of God. God sees all, and we wish to be upright in his eyes. I would say in his eyes, not the world's eyes, because that's kind of our goal. And if we are upright in his eyes, we will be upright beyond that. First and foremost, we serve God. Um, moving on to Psalm 2. Um, I'm not going to read through the whole one this time. We're just going to move through it piece by piece. Um, we, for this one, we do know that the author is David. This psalm is uh, its not attributed to anyone in your Bible, uh, at least most Bibles. Some might actually put a footnote or something. But we do know that he wrote it. Um, whether this was revealed by divine inspiration or given uh, as a historical fact passed down through time, in Acts 4, specifically verses 25 to 26, um, the speaker identifies this psalm as a prophecy given to David by the Holy Spirit. So we can take that. We can take that um, as a secure uh, authorship of this psalm. Uh, that being said, we don't know exactly when in David's life he wrote this. Uh, I am inclined to think that he wrote it as a young man, seeing the wars going on around him. Um, there is, in my opinion, an innocence in this psalm that suggests a time before David's life got more... Uh, interesting, shall we say. <laughs> if you don't know what I mean by that, I do recommend you go back and read the story of David. It's fantastic. Um, he seems to be struggling here with the reasoning behind the wars that keep popping up um, from people who seem to hate God and his people. It reminds me a lot of the way new young believers talk when they are so full of love for God that they simply cannot understand how the world um, and life without God can be attractive. Uh, for the poetic convention in this one, uh, look up, I'm sorry, look for, as we read through it, look for the and in the phrases. Each phrase, or maybe even each verse, is almost like an idea that wraps back upon itself with the start and end joined by the comparative continuation of the and. So you'll have a statement and, and then a joined statement. It's almost the and is like a hinge that brings the two, two statements together. Um, so that being said, oh, and I do want to also say, I gave my opinion <laughs> on when this occurred in David's life, but really that is conjecture. That is pure conjecture. <laughs> That's just my opinion. We really don't know when this one was written. Okay, so moving through it, let's start. I'm going to do verses one to three here. Why do the nations rage? and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Okay, so see how the, um, the and statements, they don't necessarily provide a new thought, but they expand on the thought by presenting it in a similar way, but with slightly different information. Once again, just to point out more clearly, why do the nations rage? 
hinge, and the people's plot in vain. That's kind of the same statement, just in slightly different focuses, you see? Um, I mentioned the, the structure and that it seems like, to me, it's a young man looking at people speaking against God uh, and making that statement. But note something in verse 2. Um, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. He doesn't just talk of them plotting against God. He talks about God and his anointed. Now, the word used there is not a plural word that we could use to interpret as Israel. So we, he can't be talking about Israel as the anointed in that statement. It's a singular word, or I should say, actually, it's the form of the word that shows that it belongs to the he or the his stated there. Uh, the word is actually, the original word in the Hebrew is Meshihau. And uh, if some of you might, from me saying that, Mashiach, hear the, the root word I'm getting at, and that is Mashiach, which means anointed one or Messiah. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Look at uh, verse 3 again, uh, with that in mind. Uh, often uh, we do, for, which once again, the, um, uh, ooh, I'm looking at the wrong one. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Often, we do find that the world's response to faith in God is this. The freedom that God brings is seen as oppression to those deceived. Uh, Spurgeon had a great quote uh, with regards to this. To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke? Or do we wish to cast it from us? Uh, something to bear in mind when reading this. Looking at verses 4 and 5. He, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and then I'll hold off on what he says for a moment. Um, verse 4 uh, almost seems to break the flow uh, but he still does that same thing without the linking word. Instead of the and, he simply offers the qualifying statement alongside. Uh, but the format is essentially unchanged. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Um, the Lord holds them in derision. You could insert an and between laughs and the, and you'd kind of see what I'm talking about there. They're kind of, the once again, same thing from different angles. Um, Verse, uh, verse 1 ends with the people's plotting in vain. Verse 4 says that God laughs and basically mocks their plotting. Um, so by this, uh, verses 4 and 5 become, interestingly enough, a flipped parallel of verse 1, um, kind of hinging even uh, the whole uh, thing as well a little bit. Um, so, it's, like I said, it says God laughs and basically mocks their plotting. Um, one begins with the people raging or noisily assembling or clamoring. And five says God speaks through wrath and, and terrifies them. Um, so when it says he who sits in heaven laughs, 
that's, it's kind of the, the idea of if you're talking about two armies uh, and one is a bunch of soldiers, let's say, with, with armor and swords and whatnot, and they, had, they hate someone who, let's call him Bob. Let's <laughs> say Bob also has an army. But Bob's got tanks. So after you describe that normal army, you then go, uh, and Bob's army is laughing at the other soldiers from the safety of their tanks. It's a, it's a saying that God laughs at them from heaven is a contrast of epic proportions. It's showing a, a ridiculous gap in the power of the two people being compared. Um, but then, uh, as I said with the format, five jumps right back into that traditional and format. Um, and then we move on to verses 6 and 7. Uh, verse 6, from what God says, uh, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, so this is interesting. 6, uh, God speaks, and he actually breaks the format. Uh, it's just really cool storytelling because it's God. Um, so this is like if you're writing a traditional verse chorus song and then to make it stand out, you had someone come in and read a few lines in let's say a spoken word style, kind of breaking the flow to represent God speaking. That's kind of what he's doing here. And this sort of happens for both verses six and seven. And that's because once again, God is speaking. Um, when he says... Uh, I have set my king. Um, this is not to imply greater than God. This is not God saying, I have set a king over me. Um, the I have set and the my, uh, especially if you look at the, the Hebrew and how this is phrased, this is talking about uh, uniqueness and this is talking about belonging. This is not a king over God. This is a king that, that is from God. This is my king that I give, that I place. Uh, once again, Messiah language. This is all pointing back to Jesus. Um, look at verse 7. Uh, if you're reading that and thinking it's about David himself, that is understandable. I, I can see where that would come from. Uh, the flow of Hebrew poetry can be tough to follow. And honestly, I think there's a little of David in this for sure, but not because of him as a person, um, but his line, his lineage. The speaker in verse 7 is implied to be that king that God has set, or Jesus. So still, still God, like I said, speaking, but Jesus. Um, as he says, you know, the Lord has said to me, you know, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, this is Jesus speaking there, and then he quotes God the Father, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Um, and what does that mean? What does begotten mean, for example? Well, begotten literally means to bear or bring forth, as in raising up, but primarily as in childbirth. This is a gentle step back into that poetic flow, um, but now the statement is there saying the thing twice to solidify that this king is of the same nature as God himself, being the son, one begotten of God. <clears throat> It might not be black and white for some, but I'll submit that we are seeing definite evidence of a holy, literal Son of God Messiah all the way back here in this psalm. Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing because you do find this promise throughout the Old Testament. And it's wonderful when we find it. Um, moving on, 
verses 8 and 9. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, ask, me, uh, uh, ask of me and... Um, it's the, the coda that leads into the next two uh, psalmic verses, shall we say. <clears throat> he says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Uh, fitting that the earth is simply something he owns. But God declares the nations a birthright. Um, this is calling forward to his completed work on the cross as sort of the event by which he claims the birthright, considering that God does not uh, die for the normal means of inheritance. Uh, however, Jesus dies and the old covenant is fulfilled, or dies in itself, making way for a new one, for the claiming of the inheritance. Um, that phrasing where he says, you shall break them and dash them, the, the whole rod of iron and the potter's vessel or the potter's wheel, depending on what your uh, translation says. It's all just terminology for destruction, um, uh, utter destruction. Uh, a rod of iron against simple clay pots. Um, the, a potter's vessel, a potter's wheel is just a massive stone wheel. You know, it would crumble, uh, you know, these things to dust is basically what it's saying. Um, and this destruction is applied to those earlier wicked rulers. Um, it's, just, it's just a way of saying that there's literally no way that the wicked can stand against what's coming. Um, looking at verses 10 to 12. Uh, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord without fear and rejoice with trembling. Um, we have switched back to David narrating now in his own voice as beginning. Um, o kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers. Uh, I believe he is drawing a subtle cultural distinction here. Kings would be rulers of Israel. And uh, be wise because you should already know the law. So follow it and respect God. Exercise wisdom in the rules you already have. When he says, O oh, rulers, be warned, he's talking to pagan kings. He's talking to those who are not actually considered kings to David, but would be considered worldly rulers. So to them, this is a warning. Um, because as the initial promise has not been handed to them, they have to be warned to change their ways. It's a way of reaching all rulership. It's also a way of applying what God says to the whole world, not just a select few. Um, or God's decree, I should say. Uh, he says, serve with fear and rejoice with trembling. Um, this can be hard for us, I think, to reconcile sometimes, that we are to be in awe of God. Um, we're, we're wrong to only allow for a peaceful and loving God um, when, it, when we reject that he is also powerful and jealous for his own namesake. Uh, yes, we are absolutely able to rejoice in him, but never allowing ourselves to treat him as common. Um, this is one of the reasons we do things like this. Um, this is also the reason that I, at least personally, I take a very harsh stance on false teaching. To allow the twisting of God's word is to treat God in a common way that loses the fear and respect that he is absolutely owed. Um, 
And then uh, the final verse, uh, which I should have read, <laughs> sorry. Uh, he finishes off with, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Um, kiss the son implies more of a respectful kiss, not romantic. Um, if you've seen in sometimes represented in movies or plays, uh, the idea of kissing the ring of royalty, um, that is intended to be a sign of allegiance. Um, but honestly, and sometimes, a lot of times in movies, they'll present that as like a, a lording power over someone, but that's not the original intent of that act. That act is, there's supposed to be a hint of friendship in that. See, a subjugated enemy is not generally invited to offer this kiss of respect. That could be done by kneeling or a formal writ. Um, there is still this sense of lordship and power, but the one subject to that power has an affection for the ruler and vice versa in that he's allowed to approach him and, and so intimate an act as kissing the ring upon his finger. Um, like I said, there's, there is a respect here, but there's also a, a kinship, a friendship to it. Um, and then finally, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, he ends with that offering to all of the hearers, uh, Israelite kings, pagan rulers alike. You'll be blessed if you turn to him. Um, once again, as I said, this is, this is for all. God's mercy is for all based on his decree. Um, you just, but, <laughs> all must take refuge in him. You have to turn to him. Um, but like I said, even all the way back here, it's being offered far and wide for all who will obey. Um, all right, now let's, let's take a look at Psalm 3. Um, this one, another one uh, we know is written of David. We actually have it right there at the beginning where it says, uh, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Um, unlike the first one, uh, as I said, which is uh, unattributed, the second one, which we know based on other scripture, this one, that phrasing there, a Psalm of David, that's, we have that in original context. That is actually found in scripture in Hebrew. Um, and it even sort of stands as a, a title for the song. Um, but finally, we have obtainable context. Um, the Psalm would have been written at a time that's described right in the middle of 2 Samuel 15. David is king of Israel. He has a number of sons. One in particular, named Absalom, is uh, plotting to overthrow his father, David. Uh, Absalom goes to the gates of the city every morning, kind of mimicking what the city elders would do or the old judges used to do in the book of Judges. And this guy, he, he asks people what their grievances are, like the elders would, like the judges would. And uh, in the, now granted, in the Old Testament for the kings, the elders were respected. You'd come to them with a grievance and then they would offer you a suggestion or if necessary, they would come and speak to the, you know, the grieved party um, because their wisdom and their authority would be recognized. So what this guy's doing is he's sitting there he has people come to him and they tell him their grievances, just like what happened to the, you know, the elders and judges of old. But when he hears them say their grievances, he basically is saying to them, oh yes, oh yes, it does indeed sound like you are in the right and you need some support and help. It's just a shame that the king won't come down here to hear you out. Oh, if only I were the judge, if only I were a judge of Israel so that I could actually do something to help you. 
So he, 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 he does this over and over and over again, uh, chipping away at people's faith in David and painting himself as like this, the people's hero, um, but he doesn't actually help anyone. He just makes them feel like he's got their back and he's gonna do some, but, but, I, but oh, there's no way I could do this, but he should be doing this. Never mind that Israel actually did have procedure for petitioning the king uh, for help, and there were uh, people below him in place to also help. But he's doing, he's building something of an army for himself and a people's army for himself against David, and he's gaining this kind of majority approval through his lies. Uh, David hears word for this, a word of this, and he learns that Absalom has basically decided to make himself king. So David pulls together his family, he pulls together a small army of those he knows are loyal to him, and he flees out in the desert to hide. The priests actually uh, follow David into the desert a ways with the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, David has the priest offer a sacrifice before God, and then he sends him back. Um, they object, they want to follow the king that God chose, but David basically tells them that, look, the home of the ark is in the city, um, and uh, as it and the kingship belong to God. And he basically says, I'm going to put my life in God's hands. If God wants me to stay king, he'll bring me back into the city. If he doesn't, then I accept that my death is God's decision. It's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story, and what comes from that uh, over the next three chapters, it's it's really cool, the story of David and his loyal followers as they survive in the desert. And then we have this awesome political intrigue story where Absalom has these two advisors, one who's actually loyal to David and one who's loyal to Absalom, but God confounds the disloyal man's advice. So Absalom only listens to the one loyal to David, um, and he gives him advice to weaken his position. Oh, it's, it's a very cool story. I won't go too much further with that. Uh, I do hope you'll read it for yourself, though. But... This serves as the backdrop for David writing this psalm. So during the time that David's on the run, he writes this. And we can say it's pretty much a song. It's, that's pretty clear to us. Uh, and you'll kind of see why I'll kind of explain as we go through. So let me kick us off. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 here. Um, o Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So these first two verses kind of give us the initial lyrical format of the song. Four lines, often followed by a selah. Uh, and you should see that in your Bibles there, a selah a couple times through this. Um, selah is a musical term. So that's one of, the, one of the biggest clues if we couldn't figure it out just by the structure alone. Uh, when you see selah, that means this was a song. Um, and that word salah, it means uh, something like lifting up. Some state lifting up of hands, uh, possibly the lifting up of voices. Um, either way, it's generally considered a musical note, possibly some kind of a refrain, um, and it separates the verses. Um, and I would add also it's, it's usually there to drive you to think about what has just been said. Um, sometimes it's just there to break the flow in a recognizable way, but sometimes you'll find a, a, a chapter with just one salah in it, and it's a long chapter. When you see that, that means that whatever preceded that salah, you were supposed to really meditate on. Um, so let's see. The structure, yes, uh, in this song is that the first two lines form two thoughts, building the idea of the verse. 
and the last two are a more explicit version of those first two lines. So once again, looking at uh, one to four, um, how many are my foes? So that's our first thought. Many are rising against me. That's our second thought. Then finally, we wrap it up with many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So you see what we're doing here? We, and you'll see this kind of throughout. Kind of simple statement, another simple statement. They're kind of related to each other. Sometimes they're kind of restating each other, but they're definitely linked. And then kind of a wrap-up thought that kind of takes it a step further. Um, so basically what he's saying now, looking at the actual text and what he's saying, um, is I have a lot of enemies. <laughs> and their attack on me all boils down to them declaring that God is not with me. Whether or not they understand that. See, on a, on a practical level for us, uh, this is the lesson here. See that David takes this impending threat and he shifts the focus to God. Uh, we can learn from this. So often we face trouble in this world and we instantly take it at face value. Imagine, however, if you were to respond to trouble of any kind by stopping and saying to yourself, I am facing this as someone who has found salvation in God. Then, upon having reminded yourself of your peace for eternity, then you face the problem on a uh, you face the problem on, on a natural level. Um, I think we would find it easier to follow our distress as David does with the next two verses, the next two lyrical verses, not the specific three and four, but the combination of three and four, and then five and six. We can face our problems, I should, what I meant to say, we can face our problems more spiritually appropriately, more naturally as a Christian, once we remind ourselves of that peace of God. Um, so let's look at how he responds to this. Let's look at how he responds to these attacks against him. Verses three and four. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Um, verse 2, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, a lifter of my head. That's another common phrase found in Hebrew poetry. When you're sad, what this is getting at is the physical response is a slouched posture, lowered head. Uh, to say that one lifts your head is to say that they improve even your emotional state. They lift you up, as we tend to say. Um, and why does he say these things of God? Well, because he cried out to God and was answered. Well, how did God answer him? All right, let's look at the next lyrical verse, five and six. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I lay down and slept right off the bat. This is not an easy thing to do when your life is in danger. Um, and I would say for much of us, it's not an easy thing to do when you're stressed out and when you're worried, even when you're not in danger, but you're facing a significant opposition. Um, but he actually is in danger. Uh, he says, I woke again. Why? For the Lord sustained me. And there it is. There was his answer. He may be on the run. 
Everything may look awful, but God has sustained him, even in such a small thing that he lays down each night and wakes up each morning and is able to praise God for this gift. The further thought in this verse that we get is that he trusts God and he has nothing to fear from those against him because of this trust. And he is thanking God for every single day and taking every single day as proof that God is carrying him forward. Um, looking at verses 7 and 8. Uh, Arise, O Lord, save me, my God, for you, uh, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Uh, verse 7 is short, but it still stands with that same format as the prior. Arise and save. Those two lines are his simplified request. Then the for you shall is his fuller expectation. Note that the punishment he seeks is striking upon the cheek and breaking of teeth. These seem harsh, and we'll go into that, but they are not death. Note that. David knows that those against him are his own family and his subjects, his own people. He doesn't want them to die. He wants them corrected. Uh, a strike on the cheek, that's a punishment. It's to be taken as forceful corrective measures, yes, but a punishment nonetheless. He recognizes that force is most likely needed to get the message across in this scenario, but a strike on the cheek is something you can learn from as opposed to the removing of the head, shall we say. Um, and look at the broken teeth. The broken teeth actually alludes to the teeth of animals that devour and harm. Uh, in ancient metaphor, to break the teeth of the wild animal means to render it harmless. He's not literally asking God to break the teeth out of their mouths like a UFC fighter pounding on somebody. He's talking about breaking their violent ambition to destroy whatever power they think they have, leaving them as an animal that can be domesticated or is at least no longer a threat. That's what we're getting at here. And what follows is a closing statement of praise to God. Uh, not even a request, more of an acknowledgement that God is in control and whatever happens will be in his will, though it is a hopeful one. Uh, he says this with the implication um, that he'll fall on the blessing side of this situation. Um, I'll also add a uh, fun note. You'll see that the Selah is not used between the last two lyrical verses, um, nor between the final verse and the closing line. Um, this, it seems, is kind of the opposite, interestingly enough, of our traditional hymn structure, where you typically see two verses together um, and then the chorus, and then verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Uh, at the beginning, we lump in two verses, and then we jump through. Um, in this one, it seems like he does almost like verse salah, verse salah, verse, verse, verse salah. Um, just thought that was a fun note, how it's kind of, like I said, it seems kind of the opposite of what we typically do. Um, and that it will do it for our first three chapters of Psalms. Psalms.